Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week, Ibrahim Rashid, lives with long COVID. When he first developed the symptoms, the cause was hardly recognized. As in so many cases, when the diagnosis is unknown, the patient has to navigate their own health care, even while their body rebels against all attempts at normality. Here to tell his story is Ibrahim Rashid. Ibrahim, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted that we've had a chance to connect on the Health Design Podcast. I want to start with an understanding of where you come from in this conversation. We're going to talk a little about chronic illness. We're going to talk a little bit about technology. But tell us your story. Where did it all begin for you? Thank you so much for having me on the show. I come to this work as a patient first. I I live with long COVID. Today, I'm 26 years old. But in November 2020, I was 23. I had no pre-existing conditions. I was an athlete. I was a skateboarder. I was a martial artist. And I was a grad student at the University of Chicago. But that was also when I got my first COVID infection. And ever since then, I've dealt with a wide range of different health issues. You know, I I had difficulty breathing. I developed some heart issues. I had a lot of chronic fatigue and brain fog to the point that I really struggled with grad school and had to go part-time and receive disability accommodations to manage my condition on top of my uh, graduate degree. In addition to my, my conditions getting so bad at the six to nine month mark, I believe, where I really struggled to walk. There was one day during final season in my first year of grad school when I was just reading a book underneath a tree and just like trying to relax. And I, I tried to get up and I found myself that I couldn't. My, my legs felt like, like jello, like I couldn't walk and I ended up having to crawl home. And so for a good year and a half in my condition, I had to use a cane just to get around. So I, I really come to this work of trying to use technology to help people with long COVID and other chronic, complex, acquired illnesses manage their symptoms and really return to the things that matter. I want to explore a little bit of that experience during the actual illness. So when you had these symptoms, these sound terrifying, and I'm thinking now as a family physician, how challenging it would have been to help somebody through this particular illness. What was healthcare like for you as you experienced these many and varied symptoms, which I would imagine defied explanation at the time? This was early in the pandemic, November 2020. So I think even the term long COVID wasn't really even in our popular imagination the way it is today. It was challenging. I'm a young, healthy person. And whenever you get out of quarantine, those two weeks where they told us, they were like, you'll be fine in two weeks. By week three, I remember I was waking up at night gasping for air. And I would feel all these intense heart palpitations, just like like lying down in bed. And it was terrifying. And so I I think a few weeks uh, later, six weeks after that infection, I went to the doctor and I was like, what's going on? You know, like, why am I having these difficulty breathing? So they had me go to a cardiologist and uh, where we did an echocardiogram and where they imaged my heart. And this is still during remote learning, remote school. So I was at home taking a final exam of like my first quarter of grad school. When I got the call from the cardiologist, hey, we see that your heart has like reduced functioning. 
it's not myocarditis. We thought it was, but based on the echocardiogram, your heart's just not working the way it should. So we need to get you on a dose of steroids and you need you to come in and inhalers and so on. And that was traumatizing and terrifying. I'm, I'm, I'm 23 to be told that my heart is not working like the way it should. I cried and I didn't even finish the exam. I just was like, what's the point? And I just submitted it half completed because I was so sad. And stuff like this would go on, I think, for the next six months or so, where every few weeks, I would find that I was developing new symptoms that I, I couldn't understand. And I kept coming back to the doctors and I was like, what's going on with me? And they're like, ah, oh, I'm not sure. I wanted in the early days, what would happen was, you know, the more I physically, mentally or emotionally exerted myself, the more my symptoms would roar back at me. Uh, I could have a, an, an intense conversation with a friend, and then all of a sudden my chest would start hurting intensely. I could be taking an exam, and I would struggle so much with recalling information. Like I felt like there was like a block in my mind, and it took every ounce of my energy to do basic multiplication division to the point that I was crying in the middle of the exam. Then I'd, after that, I'd go to the doctor. So it was this constant, those first six months of every time I would try to live and do things, more symptoms would come at me. Difficulty breathing, intense brain fog, being put in bed for days because of the exertion from the previous activity. And I'd go to the doctors and they'd be like, we don't know what's going on. And it was this constant back and forth of struggling and seeking answers and it was very overwhelming, to say the least. What were doctors saying to you? Because you must have gone back repeatedly to see some people and they would have said, what? What did they imagine was going wrong with you? Were you told you were depressed or stressed or were you told that you had some other condition or sent for yet more tests? What was it? How was it playing out? There came a time before I knew what the word long COVID was. I didn't know post-viral illnesses were a thing, if I'm being very honest. No one ever said the word, you have a post-viral illness or a post-viral syndrome, whatever the term is. I got my infection in November. By March, I was trying to sit my final exam. And it, it was in this instance where I was struggling so much with recall that I burst out crying and I couldn't do the exam. And I was in bed for seven days after because of the exhaustion of it. And for me to get permission to resit that exam, I had to get a diagnosis from a doctor. And I had to get disability accommodations from the University of Chicago. And it was at that moment where like a doctor finally said to me, a lot of people after COVID, it takes some people a long time to recover, 60 to 120 days. I, I can't remember why the doctor just put that number up. Give it time, you know, just focus on rest. Give it time. This is just what happens when for some people who just don't recover within those two weeks that people thought in early 2020. So I was just told, this is normal with COVID and to just rest. Meanwhile, what was going on? It's all very well to say rest, but how were you coping with your life? So this is March of 2021. And after this is when I get my disability accommodations and I, I struggle, you know, is when I really start struggling with school at this point, you know, so U Chicago is under a quarter system. So the next quarter started in, in April. And at this moment, instead of doing a full course load, I just went part time. 
I reduced my course schedule from three classes and an internship to just two and an internship. Actually, we were all remote at the time. So I went down to a part-time schedule and I ended up leaving Chicago for like a few weeks just to spend time time with my family in California. I thought I needed the warmth of sun just to relax. I really tried to find ways to reduce my energy load. I had an academic advisor who really became invested in my case, and I'm so grateful to her, where we would meet every single week. You know, her job as my academic advisor, now that I had disability accommodations, was to advocate for me to get extensions on class assignments uh, with faculty and other administrators. So every week we would check in and I'd be like, here's the assignments I have in the week ahead. Here's my plan to do it when I'm going to do it, here's how I'm going to try to like build in rest. Because at this moment, I started realizing that for every hour of work that I had to do, I would need two hours of rest. So just by having someone to check in with me every week, plan out my schedule, and then when I did fall behind to advocate for me with faculty, was super helpful. That happened in another t- instance, you know, this, this is in early spring of 2021. UChicago was experiencing a COVID surge on campus. And so I wrote an article in our student paper about my experience with long COVID and just some ideas on how our student wellness clinic could support COVID long haulers. We had isolation housing, we had contact tracing, but I felt that no contact tracer or administrator who was in touch with students was telling us about the possibility of long COVID. And so my whole article was about, hey, there's an opportunity for communication with the contact tracer. And so after that article went viral and it really started a conversation with leadership at the university, I met other long haulers who reached out to me and they introduced me to the word long COVID. They connected me with the support groups. They talked to me about some of their own experiences with just managing symptoms. They introduced to me the concept of pacing, how to think about awareness of food and the idea of crashes, which is something that people with these energy limiting conditions have. So reducing my academic schedule, having someone who my academic advisor just check in with me, manage my workload, and then getting introduced to, I think, a patient community, you know, to be like, oh, I'm not alone. This is a, this is a thing <laughs> was, was really helpful. And I think learning how to cope with the condition. What was your family thinking all the while? They must have been desperately worried about you. My family was worried but they also didn't understand what I was going through. My family is from Pakistan. I'm Pakistani-American. And in Pakistani culture, as in any South Asian Muslim culture, I think the idea of mental health, talking about depression, anxiety, and so on, it's, it's not commonly talked about in my culture. And most importantly, the solution oftentimes is be positive, pray, trust in God. In the early days of my illness, I never had any treatments. I never knew a medical way to manage my condition. All I knew was that I had a disproportional response to stress. When I would experience any kind of stress, stressor, mental, emotional, physical, even reading an academic paper, very intensely trying to take notes, put me down. You know, I'm not talking about like girl issues, right? I'm talking just by like, cognitive focus. It would like exhaust me. And this concept that like, my mental state would trigger like, this cascade of symptoms, it 
made no sense to my parents whatsoever. And so while they tried to really hard to be supportive, my condition really pushed up against, I think, their understanding of why was I sick? Why could they not just send me to my sister who would show me a nice time over the weekend and I'd be cured? Or why would just saying be positive not help? They tried to be supportive, but it really pushed up against, I guess, lack of understanding that's really prevalent in uh, South Asian and Muslim cultures. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. I can just imagine the conversations that were being held over the kitchen table about what was wrong with Ibrahim and what could fix it and the kind of reframing that was being done with a lot of love and a lot of care, but at the same time not fully understanding the nuances of a post-viral illness and all the implications of that and how it was triggering your physical condition. In the beginning, the only thing that like, I felt helped me was seeing a therapist, like cognitive behavioral therapy, trying to like, reframe my mental perception of my stressor so that mentally I could diffuse how significant it was to me personally. Within any minority communities, there is this inherent skepticism of medicine where it's all oh, these doctors are just trying to keep you dependent on their work, make you think that your problem is bigger than it actually is so that you keep paying them. This is, I think, I think a very common thing that it's not just in South Asian or Muslim communities. You see it across the United States and globally. Inherent distrust of medicine from minority communities. And so I would work with a therapist and my mom would always be like, when are you going to stop seeing a therapist? Aren't you done seeing a therapist? It's been six months. It's been a year. Is she really helping you? And I was like, yes, mom. Like nothing else in the world is helping me other than this one thing. And so it was always a clash. I think a year and a half into it, when my, my parents finally understood how things like therapy were helping me manage the symptoms, my mom said to me, you know, growing up, I used to always just think, oh, stress just caused migraines. Who would have thought that stress could put you in bed the way it has? In her upbringing, this concept that your mental state, the mind and the body are connected, and the mental state can do more than just a migraine. It was a complete, I think, rewiring of, uh, of my own family's understanding of uh, mental and physical health. What we understand is that you're not just supporting a patient, you're supporting the family. And so I would imagine that your family were hoping that somebody would find the miracle cure uh, that would suddenly make you better and not dependent, as it were, on healthcare and all the rest of it. And this brings us to a key point, and that is the concept of partnership between doctors and patients or healthcare providers and patients. And I want to pivot in that direction. It must have been challenging for doctors as well to fully understand something that couldn't be measured in physiological terms that was brought on by a condition that, again, there wasn't a barometer for. But you've talked a little bit in other 
places about the use of technology. How was technology able to assist in some way? One of the things that really inspired me and helped me, I think, manage my condition, I discovered, a wear, I discovered wearable technology. On my wrist right now is a device called Whoop, W-H-O-O-P. And a lot of athletes actually use this platform. The idea behind the Whoop is to help athletes get a sense of how well-rested is their body to take on strain. Sometimes you think, should you push yourself harder and you know, do more reps in the gym? And other times you're thinking, oh, should I take a low day and just focus on active recovery? But how do you get a sense of that? So the Whoop strap takes a combination of your heart rate variability, your REM sleep, your resting heart rate, and it tries to give you a recovery score just to tell you on a, you know, between zero to 100, red, yellow, and green, how primed for strain is your body today? I came across this by talking to other chronically ill patients and just asking them, how do you know how much to push yourself or how much to try one day and how much to like stand back? And many people gave different ideas for wearables. This is the one that I came across that I found super valuable. It really gave me a sense of how well rested I was so that I could, when I was working with a physical therapist on trying to walk again, you know, I, okay, I can like push myself a little more today because I was in the green. But if I was in the red, which is what my recovery was, let me slow down a little bit. I'm not going to push myself too hard. I'm going to do more lighter exercises and just ease up. I think using the technology that the, uh, the scores that these devices gave alongside talking to my clinicians who are open-minded about it really helped, I think, facilitate a conversation, helped me be a more conscious consumer of my own healthcare information. And I think be more aware of how the treatments I was receiving was affecting my own body. So what you're saying is that you might not feel on a particular day that your body could be pushed a little bit harder. You just don't, you're not feeling it. But the gauge says that you're in the orange or green zone and you potentially could. Basically saying to you to override the idea that you're not rested, that in fact you are fit enough to push yourself on a day-to-day basis. Is that what was going on? Yes. You know, like that's the idea behind some of these wearables. Every doctor tells you to rest. What does rest mean? Does it mean just like lie down in bed 24-7 listening to meditation music? That's really depressing. How much rest should you take and what does that rest look like? Because for me in this condition, the more I pushed myself in my day-to-day life, exercise, emotional work and intellectual work, I would experience these cascades fall and I'd feel really sick by just trying to participate in life. And so the, the scores, they were imperfect. You know, they, they, were, they didn't give me everything I needed. They gave me, I think, permission. It's like, if you were in a yellow, I'm going to try a little bit and see what happens. If I was in a red, I'd be like, no, no, I'm going to like stay in bed all day. I'm okay. If I'm in the green, I'd be like, okay, I, I think I can try to do like a brisk walk and just see what happens. Now, obviously there's moments where it's like there's over-dependence on the technology and not trusting your own body. But I think in the beginning, when you suddenly discover yourself sick, unable to manage your health and your body feels unfamiliar to yourself, I, I think the technology can be very helpful.
and giving you a gauge on uh, how well you're doing so you can get a sense of you know how much to push. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Not only is it validating how you're feeling, but and allowing you to take those extra steps. Sometimes it's challenging you. You may not be feeling fully rested, but in fact, the signals suggest that you are actually able to do more than you think you can. Yes, exactly. There are times when you're so sad and so sick in bed that you don't want to try anything. You're scared of what trying could do. I took time away from school when I lost my ability to walk. And I was so scared at the idea of trying to read again or of trying to like go to an in-person class. That fear was justified in a lot of ways. I went through a traumatic thing with my health. But I think finding a way to give yourself like an, an outside indicator to give yourself permission was very empowering with data. It's like having a coach, isn't it? Who's saying, you might not feel it yet, but today I think you'll be okay. And it's having that person on your wrist saying you can push yourself a little bit better or today might not be the day when you want to do the thing that you think you can do. Correct. Absolutely. Tell us how this played out in practice with your healthcare providers. You said some healthcare providers were open to these ideas. How did you negotiate that and how did you identify those people? With healthcare providers, if I'm being honest, not many were interested in seeing the long-term data that I had that I generated from this. These are not clinically vetted devices, and the technology is not necessarily uh, focused on symptoms. It's trying to help athletes manage their performance. So even the data, how did taking CBD oil or like cold showers affect your ability to take on strain. Not so much, you know, how did taking this medication affect your symptoms? So the data itself that was provided wasn't super, I think, well-received. It wasn't built for the sick person. And so when you would show it to healthcare providers, even though they're generating these long-term trends of your recovery scores over time or how your heart rate variability, uh, which is an indicator of a balance in your nervous system, how that is evolving. And you would try to show these reports and say, oh, I started doing this uh, treatment during this time. It wasn't really in a language, so to speak, that like healthcare providers understood. So I, if I'm being honest, you know, like I, I always wanted to share it and I did try, but it was one of those things that People just weren't that interested in, if I'm being really honest. That's an interesting word, not interested, because on the other hand, were they offering you an alternative of any sort to say, this is something that will help your recovery? In other words, there's a struggle there for the co-piloting of your condition. They're telling you, don't touch those levers, they don't work particularly well, we don't believe that data. Were they providing you with anything as an alternative? Oh, not in the slightest, you know, it was like I would be, I would jump around from specialist to specialist, you know, who'd be like, oh, I see that, oh, you can't walk, let's do an MRI of your brain and your spine. Ah, it seems like it's okay. 
ah, just rest. Take some painkillers. You've got patients who have symptoms that can't be framed within the MRI scan, right. blood test, yet they're having to deal with the realities of how they're feeling and how they're functioning. What you're suggesting here is that there was this thing that you found, a wearable, which allowed you to push yourself when you needed to push yourself, to hold back when you needed to hold back. And what you were saying is this is the gauge that I'm using or trying to use to help me to get through this period in my life until my body is better able to cope with the rigors of what I need to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think something else I'll add there, and this is where I think existing wearables do have a mismatch, so to speak. And it's what we're, what we're trying to solve for with our technology. The existing wearable devices are fantastic because they can, for some people, give you a gauge of uh, how much to push yourself or not. While the algorithms are trained on the healthy body and not the sick body, therefore, sometimes the green, you know, that like one wearable will tell you that you can push yourself at is based not exactly for like the sick person. So they might be wrong signals. One of the things that I think wearables do struggle with that we're trying to solve for is that because they're focused on athletes, they don't exactly allow the patient to derive correlations between how their daily habits and their wearable biomarkers affect their symptoms. The wearables will generate reports saying, hey, taking CBD or drinking hydrating, how did that affect your recovery score, You know, which is the red, yellow, green? What I, as a chronically ill patient, really wanted to know is I have the choice between all these supplements that I can take, seeing a chiropractor, doing yoga, doing physical therapy. I want to know, and like my big symptom was difficulty walking. I want to be able to figure out how do these activities that I'm doing, how do they affect my symptoms using the biometric data that is collected from these sensors? And I think that's something that a lot of physicians where I feel like they kind of missed the mark. You get jumped around through different specialists between and a you know, neurologist, you know, a hematologist, and so on. And they're always just trying to drug you up and put you to the next physician. But they never actually give you advice on like lifestyle in terms of like how to manage your symptoms, you know, whether that's the psychology of it, the nutrition of it, the mindset, the food, the just the daily habits of living. You know, they don't they don't give a lot of advice on that. And so what happens is that people with chronic health issues become like these self-care overlords where they're like, take all these supplements, try all these different tactics to try to manage their symptoms that they discover online and in support groups. And they don't really have a sense of how this stuff helps them with their symptoms. You know, and so I think that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out using data from these devices. How do you facilitate that experimentation for the user? And then I think communicate some of that with a physician so that they can understand here are the things that they're trying. How can they provide input advice on how these people with chronic health issues where there aren't treatments, but how can they, I think, take ownership of their health and manage those symptoms? I wonder if you've hit the nail on the head by talking about the role of physicians here, because in fact, what they were suggesting was medications and specialist tests and specialist opinions about pathology, which 
may not necessarily be relevant in this situation. You are more focused on, well, what can I achieve today? What can I do today that I couldn't do yesterday? Or what can I do tomorrow which needs me to do something which is going to improve my life or get me further on my career ladder or whatever whatever it happens to be? You talk about the overlord there. The real person in charge here is the patient. Some people with chronic illnesses, we, we call ourselves chronic illness warriors, you know, where it's like you got to like learn what's in your toolbox. What are the tools that you have in your arsenal to manage your symptoms? If you look in my apartment where I live right now, I have a bathtub because I need to take a bath in Epsom salts because that helps me relax my muscles. I have an adjustable bed, which helps me you know, the mattress is positioned in a way that it reduces the tension on my knees. I have some prescription medications to dull my like anxiety when my symptoms are cascading. And I've learned like a lot of different personal tips and tricks that I have to do to get myself through the day. A combination of supplements, deep breathing, mindset, a Rolodex of physicians, and uh, I guess you could say physical therapists, chiropractors, whatever it is, who I've accumulated when I'm falling, I can reach out to, you know, and so as the chronic illness warrior, right, like it's trying to learn how as the patient, some of these conditions can never be cured, they'll never go away. But how do you live with it? You know, how do you how do you live with it? How do you manage it? How do you communicate that experience and access and acquire help? If you ask me, like, what distinguishes a, a, a good physician and a great physician, you know, good physicians believe their patients at a baseline. I think good physicians listen to, believe, and empathize with their patients and are kind, right? Great physicians are those who are willing to be active partners in a, a patient's health. You might not know the answer to everything you're going through. But rather than saying, I'm just going to send you to the next visit, you know, the next specialist, they try to empower you with the knowledge on how to take ownership of your health. I had all these issues walking and I had no idea why, why my, my legs would have so much pain. And I once said to a physician, I said to him, I was, you know, like every time I eat sugar, I find that like the pain in my legs is worse than ever. And he was like, I have no idea why, but if that's what's happening, then go for it. You know, here's some advice on how you can manage your sugar intake uh, and just like think about the psychology of food. And I was like, oh, you're right. Thanks, doc. It wasn't a medication, but it was the validation of a medical provider, you know, that I think gave me permission to be like, okay, you know what? I don't know why, but like sugar consumption is making my legs hurt and it's making it hard to walk. You know, the best physicians I've ever had are the ones who have tried to empower me to take ownership of my own health. And part of that, you know, part of that empowerment for some people can come with data by learning how can your daily habits and your biomarkers, how do they affect your symptoms? And then you share that with the physician and then you have a dialogue of, how do you manage your health and live? Ibrahim, I think that was possibly the most important part of our conversation. And to hear a 26-year-old tell us so clearly 
the distinction between a good physician and a great physician and to articulate that with reference to this lived experience which is extraordinarily powerful is a gift and for that I thank you and on behalf of all of our listeners we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. Good to be on the show. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. Thank you.